Philosophical statements uh, that are at the basis for what we're talking about in terms of uh, business, human resource development, and the model. At the core, what is the role of democracy? Why do we organize ourselves in a country that calls itself a democracy? Why do we have a constitution? Why do we go through elections? Why is this the preferred model of government? for most parts of the world? I think that's the basic question. And I have interpreted in multiple places that in the organization of business, if you have capitalism and free markets at one end, common ownership of property or communism at the other end, then it is hard to have less than high correlation between the nature of your economy and the nature of your social construct or national construct. It's very hard to run a communist country as a democracy. It's very clear that quickly the party becomes much more powerful than the people and that's every country you can see around the world that has ever been communist. Equally, it's very hard to run a capitalist society that is not democratic because somewhere you have to keep the checks and balances in place that those who become victorious in the capitalist competitive model do not get to take control of the administration of the government, the country, the resources. So if that is the case, then though almost all free market countries are democracies, the heart of the democratic function of a government is to sustain the social construct and the government role in such a way that free markets continue to function freely without getting captured, without having huge winners and many losers, and keeping society cohesive and everybody vested in the system that they exist in. And that's really what, in my opinion, the core role of democracy is. The core role of democracy is to keep society at peace, calm. Everybody believes they're getting a fair shake, or most people get believe they're getting a fair shake. And there is no need for either social revolution or the kind of workers' revolution that Karl Marx predicted would be the end of capitalism and free markets. If that is the basic construct of democracy, then in most countries of the world, the debate is between what would be considered a left-leaning model or a right-leaning model. In the sense that the left-leaning model sees a greater role for government, sees a more active redistribution, greater regulation, 
greater constraints on corporate or individual behavior. And the rightist model reduces all of those. It assumes that people can reach equilibrium, the market will enforce its own discipline, and that businesses can thrive and sustain themselves and effectively not lead to oligopolies, monopolies, market breakdowns, uh, crashes, structures, etc. In most countries, that would be the case. The, the real political debate is between more left or more right. And that's true in most advanced economies in, in Europe, in the US, in Australia, most parts of the developed non-communist world. That's what politics is about. But as the director pointed out, in India, we have a unique situation. Of course, we are all, as individuals, we are shaped by our experiences, by our path in life. A lot of our thinking is driven by what we have learnt or what we have experienced, whether we know it consciously or subconsciously. As a country and as a culture and as a society, that's also true. So when we come from a land that has thousands of years of history, culture, some of it great, some of it not so good because it created a hierarchy of the existence of human beings through things like the caste system, then a lot of our politics is driven or derivative of our history. That's really the root of the Dravidian model. It is what is otherwise a normal left-leaning model adapted to the history of our culture, of our society, of our land. And so, as the director said, the core of the Dravidian model is the equality of all human beings by birth. Men, women, caste, all of this should not matter. Everybody should have the same rights, opportunities, access, permissions, and equal social mobility prospects. And that's really the core of the Dravidian model. It is about social justice, it's about equality of opportunity, it's about progress through access to education, access to upliftment. So it is a unique leftist model for our history and our culture. And that's really the core of Dravidianism. But unlike many societies, in our state, at least for the last, I don't know, 70, you know, bulk of the years since independence, and in fact one would argue the bulk of the last century, there has not been a real pushback against this notion of how society should be structured. What should be the role of government? There's been very little debate, if you actually see, in, uh, in the assembly proceedings or in the social uh, construct or in public meetings or political platforms. There's not anybody really pushing back against the core of the Dravidian philosophy of any party. In fact, like most things, it comes down to the execution. The model is only as successful as the results and therefore is only as validated as the results and the outcomes. Now, I would argue that uh, in many ways the Dravidian model has been validated more than any other, at least in, in my understanding of the world, because it's hard to see either any other state or for that matter any other country burdened with the legacy that we were burdened with to have made the kind of progress that we have made in the last uh, 75 years since independence. Tamil Nadu as a state is one of the four large rich states of India. 
but unique among those four in terms of human development, social development, inclusion, social justice. All of our results are far apart from the other three large rich states. And yet, if you ask me today, do I think the movement and our values have reached their potential? The answer is absolutely not. It is hugely inefficient in execution. And this is not about political party A or B. I think, you know, my party does better than the other one, but that's not the point. The point is that the system is not yet being brought to the level of execution where we should see the full benefits of these uh, values and these philosophies and these approaches. I don't want to get into too much more now because then we'll save that for the debate. But I'll just add two other things because of the topics here. What is the notion of good human resource management and human development? I've had the luxury of running large teams across tens of countries in my professional career and then you know, in my role as the HRM Minister for the Government of Tamil Nadu, we have between government itself, PSUs, local bodies, uh, and kind of contract employees and so forth, probably between 10 and 15 lakh people who work for the Government of Tamil Nadu. The principles of human resource management and human talent development have advanced greatly or our understanding of them and our understanding of organizational design, of psychology, of incentive alignment have all, uh, at least at a global level, become very, very refined. You know, in places that I used to work like investment banks or big consulting firms, there's a very clear understanding what is right, how you should get there and so forth. I would say that's not the case in much of government. Uh, we have very few levers of control. The system is not designed particularly well. In fact, it's designed quite badly. And I have never seen such a large organization with such um, archaic organizational constructs anywhere else. But you're not going into uh, government, most of you. You're going into the private sector. In the private sector, I think also the principles of the Trevelyan movement apply in the human resource management area in the sense that even in places like the largest investment banks and commercial banks of the world where I worked, in my time, I went out of my way to increase diversity, the percentage of uh, female candidates that were interviewed and therefore hired, as well as the range of institutions from which we selected uh, on-campus interview uh, candidates because the diversity of thought, there are two main goals in that, in my perspective. One is the more diverse the group you have inside your organization, the more likely you will have a robust debate and arrive at superior outcomes rather than all people of one mindset going one way. The second is most businesses, one way or the other, eventually interact with society, either as customers, as uh, captives, as uh, suppliers. And the more your organization reflects the makeup of the society you operate in, the more likely that you're attuned to your market, your customers, and you can achieve successful outcomes. So I think at the core of it, 
this notion that diversity gives us more healthy debates. If structured properly, equal rights and equal access to everybody gives us superior outcomes. And that we are trying to eradicate or at least alleviate the effects of centuries, if not millennia, of some discrepancies in our society really drives much of our thinking. I would say we still have a long way to go. As, as proud as I am that I am a fourth generation uh, member in this movement, as committed as I am to the values, I still feel that from an implementation, from an execution capability, uh, we have miles and miles to go. And uh, that's what drives me to work every day, to keep trying to get better outcomes for the people. So I'll stop there and then uh, participate in the questions. Thank you. As you said, uh, left and right you have spoken to equal opportunities, but uh, you had to speak about, uh, is it good for business school? I would say it's good for business for one reason, uh, one core reason. If you, look at, if you look around the world, and somebody please do this, go and look at the per capita GDP or the quality of life or the rating of livability of cities and compare that to the extent of social welfare and inclusion that governments practice. And you will find that, again, this goes to the heart of democracy. If you want to have successful capital markets and free markets, you must have a successful democracy. Of course, there's a means, and that is good institutions. Good institutions, strong, independent institutions, ensure that the market remains free and that the optimal outcome in terms of growth, per capita results, uh, business margins, all of that come out. So, you know, at, at an underlying philosophy, if you have an inclusive society and high distribution with relatively high per capita incomes and purchasing power, it's of course great for business. That's what business wants. I mean, we're all businesses in the business of making profit, right? That's the definition of a business, is that you want to succeed, you want to get market share, you want to improve your returns, your margins, your results. And that's a lot easier to do in a well-functioning society. Capital investments are much easier to do when society is stable, when the law and order condition is good, when the rules are clear, when the institutions are strong. Everybody is able to predict what the risks that may occur in the pursuit of rewards are. And therefore, it's a lot easier to do investment decisions. It's a lot easier to attract capital uh, when your society is calm, harmonious, and inclusive. And I would say, just look into this uh, one other variable. One of the things about Tamil Nadu that separates us from Latte Maharashtra Gujarat is the per capita purchasing power. You look at the percentage of consumer spending, and again, you'll find that you have much more uh, purchasing capacity in the average citizen in Tamil Nadu, which must by definition be good for business because you want to sell them something, a good or a service. So I would say the model is also good for business. I have about more than 100 questions, but it will be another uh, Tamil Nadu assembly debate. I don't want to do that, but I will ask uh, business questions to you, ask uh, social change then if you have time because we have next session is more I said debate I told uh, uh, Dr. Suresh Paul and uh, 
Mr. Paneer Shelvam. It's a debate, not fight. So they will have, uh, I've already arranged with uh, Pandidharan, we'll look at more debates. It's, a, it's supposed to be a dialogue between. The question, one question, uh, which is repeated almost about more than five, six times is the freebies. Can freebies really develop a state? Which is uh, the question that has been repeated. See, the word freebies itself is a misleading word, right? Every state, everywhere in the world, every country gives something at either low or zero or subsidized cost to its citizens. In fact, if you take uh, places like Australia, you get free health care, you get free education. You take places like Scandinavia, which have one of the best qualities of life, highest per capita incomes, hugely successful multinational, international businesses. They have something like a one-year government-paid paternity leave, not just maternity, paternity leave. So this notion that uh, the state giving something to people is somehow basically wrong is a complete fallacy. I'll get the politics out of the way first. After all these debates that have been going on at the national level, I don't know if any of you have kept up with the uh, manifestos given by both the major parties in Himachal Pradesh and Gujarat. Both, including the BJP, have given lists of so-called freebies that are like pages long that they're going to do. And my friend, the Honorable Union Finance Minister, tweeted uh, some 15 of these as a statement of how women were going to benefit should the BJP come back to power in, in Himachal Pradesh. So let's get the politics out of the way. Now the reality is, what, what is at the core of freebies, right? There are only two real questions. The first question is, are you making people lazy and dependent by giving them something that they otherwise could have earned? Question one. Question two, should it be given universally to everybody or do you really find those in need? I don't think anybody in any society says, find those in real need and don't give them something, right? So the, the, those are taken for granted. So the real question is, how universal should it be and what kinds of things should be supplied by the state or given by the state or covered by the state? And I've talked extensively on this uh, many places, so I'll try to be as brief as I can. I think there are things that the state does which are critical, right? Uh, if we don't give free food in schools, we're now expanding it to free breakfast or school-provided breakfast, then we will not be investing in the uh, nutritional development and therefore the physical development and therefore the mental capacity to learn of our children. Any society's competitiveness in the global market that we all exist in today is defined primarily by your weighted average productivity of your citizens. And if you cannot get them the right nutrition and the right education when they are young, everything else is lost after that. If you don't bring them from birth, I mean from maternity to, let's say, a teenage with full nutrition and full access to education, after that, all your other interventions are irrelevant. You cannot make up for that loss. So whatever we do on those things, I think it's beyond debate that those are critical. And I don't think we're doing it in such a way that it is making anybody lazy. And we're certainly not doing it in all schools. We're not doing it in, in rich people's schools. We're not doing it in affluent uh, areas and so forth. So th those and all should be beyond debate. Uh, 
there's a whole other set of uh, government-sponsored schemes like uh, health insurance, like uh, what used to be the Tali um, Kitangam and the marriage assistance schemes, which I have defended saying they're like insurance against falling into a debt trap if it was executed right. We didn't change away from the Tali Kitangam to the Pudumai Pen scholarship scheme because we were against that. We changed because it had not been implemented for four years and therefore the backlog was so high and the risk mitigation value, that is to prevent a family falling into debt for a child's wedding, that value had already been lost because it had been four years since the wedding had happened for some people and three for some and two for some others. So we changed it. So if there is a risk mitigation program, whether it's crop insurance, health insurance, life insurance, accident insurance, or falling into debt insurance for special events, like weddings, then it's justifiable. If you start looking at certain freebies, I personally am a huge critic of the so-called uh, 25,000 rupees to get a two-wheeler because it was minuscule, it affected only 100,000 people out of a state of 8 crore, out of 3.5, 3.8 that uh, crore that work in a state where we're trying to promote uh, a public transport system. For example, it was much, much, much better to give free bus rides to women than to give 25,000 rupees per person to 100,000 people for uh, two-wheelers because that is, uh, again, pollution-inducing, extra crowding. We don't even have the infrastructure to uh, have those existing two-wheelers. We're already like the most dense two-wheeler state in the country. We have 2.33 ration, uh, crore ration cards and something like 2.8 registered, 2.8 crore registered two-wheelers. No other state in this country is anywhere near that. It partly has to do with per capita income, purchasing power, etc. But we haven't built the roads or the parking or the traffic system to cope with that. Why would we burden ourselves more? So, clearly there are some things which are just poll gimmicks and which don't increase productivity either directly or indirectly or immediately and don't reduce risk. Those I would consider to be wasteful. So let's leave the quality of the freebie or the nature of the freebie or the, or the program aside. I, for one, am all for making sure it goes to the right people because if it goes to people who don't need it, not only is it an inefficient way for you to spend the money of a limited resource that the government has, but if you give money for nothing to people who otherwise will not use it for core needs like food or, or clothing, then you are actually supplementing inflation. You are pumping increased money into the system for no increased productivity or no improved quality of life on an immediate level. So I, I personally am all for understanding who should get what and ensuring that only those people get it. For example, we give old age pension, widow's pension, differently able pension. I think we should do more of that. We should have better data and we should give more money than we give now. I've raised this issue many times. I said, why is it that uh, all the government servants get twice a year cost of living increases, but the old age pension and the widow's pension has not been increased for 10 years? Don't they have an inflation problem? Don't they purchase goods that also go up in cost? So I think, you know, the more you target, the greater the efficiency of the government spending and the lower the likelihood that you will get unintended consequences like inflation or other malfeasance. I'll give you uh, another example. If you give money as cash, in my view, 
there are a lot of things that could go wrong with that. You know, we have, I don't want to go too much into the details, but when we gave the 4,000 rupees per card, uh, as the Chief Minister promised, and as he directed us to do in 21, during the depth of the crisis, best thing we did, we were happy to spend the money, it lifted the bottom of the pyramid, it kept us from going deeper into recession. All those things were true. But there were many, many instances where people who had never ever used a ration shop before the 4,000 rupees and never, never come to the ration shop after the 4,000 rupees still took the 4,000 rupees. Then you ask the question, if that many, and it was not like few, right? It was lakhs. If that many lakhs of people have never come before or after, is it that people who don't otherwise need government subsidies decided to come just because they wanted the 4,000 rupees? Or is it that the data systems are so poor that we can't really tell who's taking and not taking. So these kinds of complications arise when you start trying to execute without proper information. And so the last thing I'd say is to do the right kind of targeting, you need a lot of information and you need to cross-reference a lot of different data sets that already exist. And that's what we announced in 2021 in our budget as part of the data purity project. And it has hugely helped us, hugely helped us especially in things like the Joe Loan Waiver, uh, our costs have been dramatically reduced by cross-referencing and finding the kind of uh, people who otherwise, let's say, had 100 sovereigns of jewelry and they pledged it in 12 different or 15 different places uh, because of the five sovereign limit. So we were able to eliminate a lot of those and that saved us a lot of, uh, a lot of money and a lot of bad outcomes. Uh, I have another question. I'll ask the question, but I will allow you to sip the coffee, but chew it on. Uh, you talk about uh, in inclusive growth. What is the problem with the economically weaker section to be given a percentage in the reservation? You can have coffee, but I would like to ask uh, Professor Jairanjan. You say that Dravidian model eradicates discrimination. Discrimination. Uh, social discrimination, caste discrimination. But you see, out of 646 villages, and most of the villages still practice untouchability in many ways. But how far we have uh, uh, improved on this and how we have eradicated by implementing the Dravidian model? <clears throat> uh, what you are saying is uh, true, as I have uh, stated in the opening, my opening remarks. It's a long journey. Okay, if you, if you imagine what was the situation like, let us say, in 1960 or 1970, and what is the situation now? Now you will see the difference, you know, what kind of difference that we are experiencing in the lives of you know, the rural masses. During the 1960s and 1970s, the substantial rural population was depending on the landholders, even for their food, even for the next, you know, next meal they had to depend on them. So you kind you can imagine the kind of survival relation that you know, prevailed then. Okay, now that has changed, but that doesn't mean that you no know, they are completely free. They are free in the sense they are free to seek their livelihood. That's why the level of uh, diversification, economic diversification, that has happened in the state is so high, and that is precisely why whatever uh, honourable minister has just said, no, 2.8 uh, crore or two wheelers. Are registered vehicles. Why that is required? That is required because of the kind of diversification that has taken place. And if you see the rural non-farm employment that has happened here, it's phenomenal. Okay, that kind of freedom we could achieve. 
but that doesn't mean that you no know, the social stigma associated with the caste and the hierarchy has disappeared it will take long long lot more of a time and we have to struggle for that and that is that can happen on two on two fronts one you need to have economic freedom and simultaneously you need to have social organizations which will strive for this kind of social reforms so that's what now we are trying to do all the time and that is a long journey so thank you i will come back to that free schemes that you have done a research so i'll come back to you uh, honorable minister there's no set inclusive growth you talk about yeah so, so i don't you have this again I'll, i'll be very brief i think we have at least i have four basic problems with the cws as its structure the first is that as i say you need strong independent institutions that give consistent rulings so when you already have supreme court rulings that say that you cannot give reservations based on economic circumstances and i assume the underlying philosophy is that economic circumstances change much more rapidly if if you're born into a particular community that has had a few hundred years of discrimination you can't change that tomorrow but your economic circumstances can go both up and down much more quickly and if you have a supreme court ruling that already or a, or a precedent that says there's a ceiling on uh, reservations etc then to violate that seems uh, like making the quality of the institution and the clarity of the law uh, worse and that's not good for democracy but those are the practical things the more profound things if the uh, limit for economically weaker is 8 lakh is hugely hugely wrong the per capita income in this country is 1.34 lakhs or something like that and the cut off for piling income taxes is 2 and a half and the first rupee of income tax you start paying is 5 lakhs and at that level i'm told there are only about uh 1.8% of the population or something that is even at the 5 lakh level now if you say you're going to reserve 10% of the uh, uh quota for people who can make up to 8 lakhs i mean your own definition of economically weaker is blown out of the water because you only have the top of the top of the pyramid only at 5 lakhs by the time you get to 8 lakhs so if you really want to set the economically weaker you should have set it at per capita level or below per capita level or maybe one and a half times per capita level not five times per capita level and then call that economically weaker the term loses meaning when you are at five times therefore what you see is that the reservation percentage also is giving very skewed results if you put 10% of the quota for people who in theory should be only around 2 3 4% of the population therefore you find the cutoffs for people wherever they have implemented the ews quota the cutoff mark for the ews quota is almost always much lower than the obc uh, mbc levels and in many cases lower than the adhidravada scst levels that means you have created an artificial low entry point and our data around income and all that is very weak right we have we have a very small formal economy i don't really know who's making how much i can get a certificate saying anything uh, in many cases so the system in its conception has so many loopholes and so many flaws and in outcome it proves those to be true because we're getting these grotesque outcomes that just because so imagine that you have you know somebody like me who was born into a forward community if i could show that i had only 8 lakhs income then i have a lower cut off or my son has a lower cut off than somebody who has you know 500 years of oppression and is a, uh, and is already excluded in the creamy layer 
on the other side of the reservation. So it's it's just a perverse construct. That's the reason. But, but they say among the forward caste, high caste, there are very poor and weak and object poverty also. There may be, but I'm saying then you have to figure out a better model than this, right? I, I, first of all, the whole question of whether current economic outcomes equates to centuries of oppression, that is a philosophical question. I don't agree with that, but other people may have a different view. That's a different story. But even if you have a valid argument that there are people who have, you know, abject poverty, and if the Supreme Court didn't already have a ruling and therefore it was not an upset of the president, and if every other condition was true, I would still say the implementation and the cutoff levels for income need to be much lower and much better than they are now. How is 8 lakhs abject poverty? Right? If per capita yeah. income is 130, Correct. 8 lakhs is not abject poverty. Right? Right. Take up this uh, the schemes that you have done a research and uh, also the schemes, free schemes, uh, when you talk about Dravidian model, it roots out uh, corruption also, putting the money in the hands of people. But in your research, recently you have done a research and the Chief Minister also quoted your research. And did really reach the poor because United Nations, when they spend, 70% they spent in their administrative but trickle downs to people only 2%, 3% and all. Is this happening also in Tamil Nadu? That's one of the questions. I'm not asking questions. <laughs> so questions asked by students and faculty. Yeah, this... Uh, <clears throat> The uh, recent research is about, you know, the free bus travel that we have uh, given to the women in the urban transport systems, owned by owned and operated by the state. Now, and during the first phase, we had taken up uh, the Chennai city alone, where we found that, you know, the women who use the public transport are essentially coming from the lower social strata as well as lower economic strata. And for them, the free bus travel makes a huge lot of a difference in terms of 20, per, 20 to 25% of their uh, monthly expenses. And that they could save now. And when you go to the rural areas, then we selected three different locations. One agrarian-based uh, location that is uh, Nagapatnam district. The other one is an industrial location that is uh, Tirupur. The third one is Madurai, where you know, a mix of both. Where you find the benefits you now that accrue, to the women, lower strata, social and economic strata women, ranges from, let us say, uh, 18 to 22 percent of their uh, monthly expenses. But these are all the benefits that you see immediately. What the, the, there are cascading effects, which we are unable to capture as of now. Like for instance, in your introductory remark, you said, the higher participation, labor force participation, that we have to work out. We have to wait and see how it, uh, no, plays out. That is one. And secondly, the new kind of uh, no, empowerment that women may enjoy. The third one is in terms of no, access to higher education in combination with, let us say, the new scheme that our Honorable Minister was talking about, that's Pudmai Pen. Pudmai Pen, we give you 1,000 rupees for uh, no, the, any graduation or any post-metric uh, program for every month. Along with you know, free bus travel, will en may enable a lot more of rural girls to get into the educational stream. And also not get into the labor force. On one hand, you find the younger uh, people who have already diversified and uh, moved out of agriculture, a lot more of them. Now, this new bus travel will enable them to seek you know, further and further new opportunities. And that benefit you now we haven't calculated. 
what what we have calculated is just the saving that has happened because of the free bus travel and as i have told you that no there it has immense cascading effect and that has not been worked out and that needs to be worked out i just want to add uh, on this pudumai pen uh, i just got some data the other day when we announced it we said anybody who would have qualified based on this criteria was already in second year third year other courses polytechnic iti also can apply and uh, for you know maybe this it's a slow uh, awareness maybe it's some other problems but i think we got only about 2 lakhs or 1.8 or 2.2 or something we were expecting up to 4 5 lakh people but the first year students who have joined this year we've already got almost 1 lakh applications right and this is through the banks and all we're working uh, we just had the meeting day before so that's why i have the data so one of two things is true either the awareness is greater among the entering students compared to the existing students because otherwise if i'm going to get one lakh in one year then second year third year plus you know second year polytechnic all this thing i should have four or five lakh applications i have not got that or in fact because we're giving the money and possibly because they can go by free bus more people have decided to go to college this time than decided last year or the year before that right i mean we don't have the data yet to tell which is which but we see effects immediately when we announce some of these schemes because that was the whole ambition when we said tamil nadu is number one in the country 52% gross enrollment ratio in higher education while we are very proud of that there is a huge discrepancy between private school and public school uh, college going and male and female college going and the bottom of all enrollment ratios is girls coming out of government schools so when we give this 1000 rupees if there is any connectivity between intent and outcome then we should see a huge jump in girls who who continue who choose to continue their education rather than drop out because they can't afford it right so i think these are the programs that we need much more data like uh, the study for the bus and we can tell really what's happening yeah constant time constraint i think next uh, which is going on i the last question to both of you last comment can we teach this as a business model to our students sir if you if you are teaching uh, ethics and business i think you can uh, very well teach uh, business you know, dividend model and the uh, uh, as a development model yeah financial model yeah i mean again i go back to the core right the nature of most corporations is to increase market share increase profit increase margin um, grow the business if you want to do that a calm stable predictable environment with consumers who have purchasing capacity and a workforce that has productivity helps you in every way because every business today whether you like it or not you're in a global competition right even if you're a sme there's people who can import and sell or people who you know other smes who are competing with you so in the sense that this model increases weighted average productivity increases per capita purchasing power and increases the likelihood of a harmonious society all these are crucial to successful business outcomes therefore i think it's uh, eminently suitable that we should teach this to business people i, I think my faculty have to be convinced about this i think uh, i i get the nod of uh, area chairs in front of me i think this will be the closing remarks please uh, next continue our conversation 
uh, it's because of the time. We would invite immediately onto the stage uh, uh, Mr. Tharani Dharan, uh, Panit Shalvam and Suresh Paul. Let's give a good hand to the panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you.